I'm going to miss that beat right there. This is the last week of our, our series on Enough. We're looking at what Scripture says about money and possessions, and I'm about to take off like a rocket. I hope I don't. Oh, okay. I think I'm safe. Really glad you're here. If you would um, look into your program, you'll find a connection card and a listening guide that you can follow along to the message, and later on we'll ask you to maybe think through some next steps as a result of the message that you might want to take. When I was 14, I sensed a call to become a pastor. Very clear, very clear sense that God was calling me to be a pastor. I I didn't realize, I had this sense that God wanted me to do something more and go into full-time ministry, and I didn't realize there were other options other than pastor. I didn't have a lot of people cluing me into these things, but that's, that's where I thought God was calling me to go, and God confirmed that call over the years. You know when you're, you're young and you're starting to think about what you're going to do when you get big and grow up? <laughs> you, you, you look at what the options are, or you look at maybe what you're going to do. So I, as I thought about becoming a pastor, I, I started paying more attention to what the pastor in the church I grew up in did. And there were a couple things I I really didn't want to do when I stepped into this role. First thing that I really dreaded, and I mean dreaded, I'm an introvert, not the kind of guy that wants to walk in the room and have a lot to say. Very first thing was I couldn't imagine how to do a funeral service. I could not imagine standing up in in a room full of people who were grieving and speaking to them. I dreaded that. The other thing is, as he began to deliver messages about money and giving, I thought, oh, I don't want to bother people with that. I really don't know how that's going to work. And, oh, that's it's another thing I dreaded. One thing I've learned, I've, I've been pastor for almost 25 years now. One thing I've learned is that God gives the help you need to do whatever it is he's asking you to do. And both of those circumstances are very good opportunities to help people because very real things are going on. When someone's grieving, their heart is being drawn toward things that really matter. And in our finances, as we handle our money and possessions, it's a very real part of life. And so I really help people. I thought I was being sensitive by not talking about money. For, for, for a few years. I thought I was being sensitive to people by not bothering them uh, with this aspect of what the Bible says. But really, this area is so real that it's important to talk about it. I, I'm really being, one of the most caring things I can do is, is talk about God's view of money. And so that's what we've been doing over the last few weeks. Um, as, as you get a handle on how he wants you to handle your money and possessions, life can really open up to you. It's a doorway into God's blessing if you learn what he says and how he wants you to handle it. When you, when you open your hand toward God with your money and possessions, it can unlock his work, not just in the financial area of your life, but, but in every area of your life. It's very important. Fifteen percent of Jesus' recorded words dealt with the topic of money. 
he had a lot to say about that. So each week as we begin a message, we've been looking at a conversation he had or some teaching that he did on money that applies to us. The reason Jesus spent so much time on the topic of money is because your attitude toward money and possessions is an x-ray of your heart to God, toward God and his kingdom. This, we talked about this the first week. But it's, it's like an x-ray. It shows you what's going on in your heart. And God wants our heart. He doesn't just want our religious activities. He wants our heart. He doesn't want us to just do religious stuff like go to church and maybe put money in the offering and pray and do the thing. He wants our heart. And when he gets our heart, life is really good. When, when he gets a hold of it, it's, it's very, very good. As we learn to walk with him, as we begin to figure out how to take the first step, then the next step, then the next step with him. And we continue to walk through life with him. Life gets really good the more and more he gets a hold of our heart. Let's, let's start out by listening today. We're going to start out by listening to a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples at the temple. And he was, he was there at the temple watching people put money in the offering box. This is, this is what it says. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and he said, hey, hey, come here. Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had. All she had to live on. That is extreme faith that this woman has expressed. She demonstrated extreme faith. And, by the way, notice that Jesus is standing there watching people put money into the offering. Why, why is he doing that? Because it's an x-ray to the heart of people. You find out a lot about people that way. So he's observing. He's evaluating. And that, that's why money is so important. It's, it's a way that we need to look at our lives so that we understand where we're at in our relationship with God. But this widow displays a tremendous amount of confidence in God that he is going to take care of her needs as she abandons everything she's got to the service of the temple, to what God's, God's doing in the temple. That was where his work went on in that day. Now, I don't know many people who have started at that level of faith. That's, that's extreme faith. I don't know many people who have started there. Most of us have to learn to excel in anything, especially in this gracious act of giving, by taking small steps toward, toward excellence. If you think about it, everything you've excelled in came in stages. And we can't go from zero to 60 without learning to shift gears in a car. That's, that's important. If you're going to learn anything, whether it's driving a car or learning to run, you go through, you progress through a series of stages. You know, we crawl then we walk, and then we run. You don't start out running. That's probably good. Gives parents at least something else to deal with while their children are learning to crawl and then walk and then run. Then you're waiting for the day they walk, and then you start chasing them around, hoping they don't hurt themselves as they, as they start doing that. But 
there's stages. There's definite progress, markers, when people learn to walk or whatever it is that they're going through. The same holds true in learning to honor God with our finances. There, there tend to be stages that we go through, that God takes us through. So today, what I want to do is I want to look at those stages. Before we do that, we're going to look at some motivations that are weak, some are weak, and some are strong. But one thing you can know for sure, if you're walking with the Lord Jesus, if you decided to follow him, or if you're considering what it means to follow him or what all is entailed in that, Jesus motivates his followers to become givers. Guaranteed. You can expect that. That's where he's going to lead you. Now, I'm not a native giver. I'm not. Actually, the Bible says none of us are. I'm a native taker. That's more where I land. Cindy, throughout our marriage, we've been married 32 years. I hope that's right. Um, I'm pretty sure it is. Is that right? I got that quiz question correct. Um, but throughout our, our marriage, she, she likes to share food at a restaurant. You know, you're looking at the menu. Hey, you want to share? Well, one thing is we don't like the same things. That's one problem. But my first thought when she says, hey, do you want to share is, I don't know if there's going to be enough. Honestly, I, I, I don't. I'll buy you whatever you want, but do we have to share? That, that's what kicks in. I'm not a guy. I'm not a sharer. I don't like that. And what happens is I read in a business book one time, and he was talking about win-win situation. And he said what most businesses do and what most people do, they have a scarcity mentality. They're just afraid there's, if, they, if they give, if they set up a win-win situation and they compromise or they give it all, there's not going to be enough for me at the end of the deal. And that's how I am with sharing food. I'd probably ruin some really romantic situations by not being willing to share. But that's my loss. I blew it. But, but God has built, and what God has done is he's built a law into life that is like the law of gravity. And that's why it's, a very, it's a very much a disservice for me to be quiet about the matter of money and possessions and giving. Because he's built a law into life that's just like the law of gravity, just as real. Luke 6 says, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So here it is. One way Jesus motivates us toward giving is by pointing out this basic law of life. And it is a part of the factor. It's it's woven into the fabric of life. God's built it in. He says, give, because when you're a giver, you get blessed in proportion to what you give. Give a little, you get blessed a little. Give a lot, you get blessed a lot. It comes back to you in the measure that you use. Throughout the Bible, God motivates us to obey him like this. This is how he does. He doesn't have to. He created us. It's only right that something that's been created do what the creator made it to do. That God gives us a choice whether or not to follow him, whether or not to serve him. And it would be right if he's, you know, as he's telling us what he wants us to do, just say, you know, because I said so. That's why. Just do it because I made you and you needed it. That's a, that would be okay. 
But the way God motivates it all through Scripture is he, he tells us what he wants, and then he shows us how it's going to be good for us. That's the kindness of God. That's, that's the grace of God. And so this is how he motivates us to give. Giving is not a native reflex, but it is a part of who we were made to be. Because we as human beings, we were made in the image of God. And we have a natural generosity built in. It's not a native reflex, but there is a natural generosity to give. And when, if we'll open up our hands to give, we experience blessing and we taste life the way God made it to be. We get a taste of what it's like. God gives a return blessing when, when we give. It, it comes in different ways. It might be our health is protected. Uh, maybe we get some extra income. Maybe a, the ability to buy a new car. Maybe he helps the old car run another 50,000 miles. It comes back in different ways. It's not always a financial return, but the, his hand is on your life. And there's this protective factor to it. And there's this blessing that flows, and it impacts our, our finances. But it comes back. Jesus says, if you give generous portions, you get generous portions of blessing back. Very, very, very important to understand that. That's a basic law of life. What motivates generosity? I want to look at that before we keep moving. Jesus is going to motivate us. And what, what motivates us? One way he does it, he shows us how good it is for us. Uh, specifically, I want to look at what motivates us to give to, to his cause, to Jesus' cause, and to other people around us. What does God say about motivation? Well, here, there, there are a couple of very weak motivations that we'll look at to begin with. First one is self-interest. makes perfect sense to us if we're going to go to a health club, that we join the health club, and we, we pay dues. Because we're going to get an advantage to having the privilege of going to the health, health club. And so we pay dues. We, we get that. That makes sense. Or when you go to a movie, you know you're going to have to buy a ticket. You have to pay something for that ticket. So whenever people start coming to church, it makes sense to give something to cover the cost or the value of the event that you're experiencing. Now, I'm personally grateful that people don't give according to how they thought the sermon went that morning. I mean, we have very faithful people. They give because they love God. It's all about them and God. It's not about the sermon, you know, because it might be a $5 sermon that day. You know, or, hey, that's a, that's a $25 sermon. Wow, you hit it out of the park. That's like a $100 sermon. That's as good as going to the Hollywood Bowl to see a concert. So we're just going to chunk it in there. But, but anyway, you get the picture. Self-interest is a weak motivation. It's going to wane depending on how you feel and how you feel about what's going on. Another weak one is guilt. Another very weak motivation is this matter of guilt. I've, I've made a decision. To the best of my ability, I never want to motivate anybody to do anything out of guilt. Now, I mention the Bible's passages sometimes that speak to matters that brings conviction. Conviction and guilt are two different things. You, you see the truth, and it, you know God's speaking to you through that. I, I want God to do that, but I do not want to motivate people with guilt. So I work hard to avoid verbal arm twisting. 
I really do. I work hard at that because it's weak. It's not going to last. If I start doing that, I've got to keep doing that. And God wants our hearts. He wants us to do what's right because we love him and he has our hearts and we understand what's right. And that's, that's what's important. So verbal arm twisting guilt, that's not what God wants. He doesn't want me to try to shame you into giving. Listen to 2 Corinthians 9. Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. He doesn't want us to give out of guilt. He knows that that's weak. That's a weak motivator. So God gives us some strong motivators. And and these are the strong ones. First one is gratitude. I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a war zone. I Actually, I was writing. I came back from Dallas yesterday. I was uh, at a meeting in Dallas and or in Fort Worth, and I was on a plane coming back, and I sat next to a Marine. And the Marine, he had been in the war, the battle in Fallujah in Iraq. And I, so I talked to him a little bit about that. And, you know, his adrenaline gets going. He's a Marine. You know, that's, what, that's what he does. But we were talking about that, and I can't imagine being in a war zone and, and have someone give their life for me. They either take a bullet that was heading my way or a grenade, a live grenades on the ground. They cover it. I, I can't imagine that. And I know I went to D.C. a few years back and visited the war memorials. And you see people looking up the names on the Vietnam Memorial. You see the other memorials. And I know of people, I've heard of people, men, who go every year to visit and to find the name of someone who gave their life for them. I, I can't imagine the sense of gratitude. They go, they visit, they lay the flowers at the memorial out of gratitude. If, if you really come to know Jesus Christ and you understand what he's done on your behalf, the price that he's paid to forgive you, for your sin, and then the grace and the continued forgiveness and patience that he displays over time as you try to figure out how to please God, you're incredibly grateful. There's a sense of gratitude that wells up in you as he changes your heart, as he forgives you, as you develop a relationship with him and God. He, he changes you and your hands start opening up out of gratitude for what he's done. Strong motivation to give. Second one is obedience. When we follow Jesus for a while, we begin to let him rule, rule our life. You find out that the more you do life his way, the better off you are. It really, doing life his way, doing what he wants, his will, it really brings life together. And so you grow beyond gratitude to where you're motivated to just do what he wants. So you look at situations, you look at your finances, you look at circumstances, you say, God, just tell me what you want because I know that's going to be the best. And when you get into Scripture, you find out what he wants, you just do it because that is going to be the best thing for you. So that's another level of motivation. Starts with gratitude, moves to obedience as you understand, as you begin to realize, wow, what he wants is really best for me. Next level is sacrifice. Jesus sacrificed himself for us so that we could have eternal life and be forgiven. 
Sacrifice is at the heart of our faith. And as you begin to walk with Jesus, you, you begin to pick up, as you spend more time with him, you pick up this sense of how important it is to sacrifice for others. Jesus paved the way in this. So we see what he's done. We appreciate it. And he leads us at times to be sacrificial in our giving. It's related to obedience, but it's another step. It's another stronger motivator. A need arises in a ministry or in in a, a someone around us has a need. And we sense that God wants us to lay it all out there like the poor widow. And, and we do it. And we're motivated to do this because we know following Jesus, it's a sacrificial way. So we're motivated by that. Strong motivator. Another one is mission. Uh, this level of motivation grows out of a vision for what God wants to do in the world. We see the pain and the problems in the world and in our society and the craziness. And when you walk with Jesus, you begin to realize he is the ultimate cure. He, he's the one. And so you want to help. Whatever he's doing, whatever he's told us to do to help, you give because you're motivated to go right to the core of what's really going to help the people in this world and help this war, the, the, the things to turn around. Here's some perspective from William Bennett. He was former Secretary of Education in the United States. He said, I submit to you that the crisis of our our time is spiritual. What afflicts us as a nation is a corruption of the heart and a turning away of the soul. Nothing has been more consequential in the unraveling of our society than large segments of the American society privately turning away from God. To turn things around, there must come a widespread personal spiritual renewal. That we, we, we think like that. If you, if you walk with Jesus, you know the difference he's making in you. And you know what he does through churches that teach the Bible and try to do what he wants to do. And so you give to that. Strong motivator. And then finally, last strong motivator is love. Actually, love is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It goes through all of these. But this is a strong one. When you walk with the Lord over time and you see how he continually pours out his grace and kindness to you, your heart gets tenderized. You become tender toward other people. You become tender toward what God wants to do in and through you. And your hands hands open up in generosity to help move that. The more you walk by his power and in his spirit, Returning love to God for the love he pours out to you makes more and more sense. And it flows. That kind of motivation remains. It sustains us as we stay close to him and the motivation that he gives. So you can expect Jesus to motivate us to give. You can expect Jesus to lead you to higher levels of giving and personal impact. That's what he's going to do. We've been talking about the three things you can do with your money. You can spend it, you can save it, you can give it. It's interesting that the one thing that you can do that has nothing to do with you, which is give, is the most powerful way that changes you. It's the most powerful thing out of those three that changes you. 
if we follow Jesus, what he's going to do is he's going to lead us to higher and higher levels of giving. He does that for our own good. And he does it for the good of his kingdom, for his purpose to fulfill what he wants to do in the world. So here are some levels. And as I talk about these, you might want to identify where you're at and consider what God wants you to do. What's your next step in this? But here are some levels that he's going to grow us through. First one, level one, return a gift to God spontaneously. 2 Corinthians 9 is a passage in the Bible about giving. At the end of that, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift, the gift of Jesus Christ. At this level, you appreciate what God has done in giving his son Jesus. He's, he's died for you. He sacrificed his life for you so that you could be secure in eternal life. And you well up with emotion and appreciation, and you give in the wave of that emotion, that emotion of gratitude. You give because you're grateful for what he's done in your life. You're grateful for the ministry that he's done through the church, and and you give. That makes sense. When people come around the church and God begins to speak to them, I've noticed that as he becomes real to them, it's, it's normal because we're naturally generous. It's normal for them to want to contribute in some way. Their time, their talents, their money, their treasure, whatever. They, they want to they contribute. That makes sense. Spontaneous. You return a gift to God spontaneously um, out of gratitude. The Lord is going to want you to step up to the next level as you continue in your walk with him. The next level, he's going to lead you to move on to level two, planned proportional giving. There's a natural generosity that grows out of the way we were made. That's true. We're moved by a cause or a purpose, and we open our hands to give. We want to meet that need. That's, that's normal. You're in a situation, you find out about what's going on, there's a tragedy in the world, you want to give to that, you want to help. God wants to grow us to greater and greater impact in the world with our lives and in our giving. So he's going to stretch us beyond our natural generosity. Our faith grows just like muscles. What do you do to grow a muscle? You stretch it, push against it. There's resistance. You stretch it with exercise. Faith grows as you exercise the faith muscle. And so God's going to move us to grow as people, and he's going to move us to grow in generosity through exercising this faith muscle. Second Corinthians 9, 7 says, and we read this before, each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God's generosity toward us is not based on emotion. His love is a choice that he makes. Because of who he is. He is love. And so he chooses to keep loving us whether or not we're lovable. There's a passage in the Bible that says he demonstrates his love for us and that while we're yet sinners, he died for us. He, he shows his love for us whether or not we were loving him back and we weren't. So God's love and generosity toward us is not based on emotion. And as we walk with him, He wants us to think about what we're doing with our giving. Our emotions limit our desire to love people, and they will limit our giving as well. There's there's an end to our our emotions, and sometimes they run out, and you don't want to do loving things to your 
husband or wife or family or whatever. You just don't want to be loving. You don't feel like it. And you're not. There's a limit to that. So God wants to stretch us beyond our emotions and our natural inclinations. And he wants us to think about our giving and come up with a plan. That's the instruction here. When we give out of guilt or emotion, we're limited. It's limited. It's a very weak motivation. Like a rubber band, when the pressure's on, it stretches. But you let go of the pressure, it goes back to the way it was. Emotional giving is like that. So God wants us to think about it. 1 Corinthians 16.2 says, On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. We're instructed to give weekly. In, in this day, people got paid daily or at the end of the week. Uh, you, whatever your pay period is, whenever you get paid, we're instructed to give a proportion, a portion, a percentage of your income as he may prosper. That's the instruction. If you decide this beforehand, you think about it, you plan it, you give in proportion, this prevents emotion from being the driving force of the gift. And until we form a recurring giving plan and involves a percentage of whatever it is uh, we earn, we're just stretching our natural generosity, and it tends to rise and fall with the emotions that we feel. So that's level two. Level three, the threshold. This is threshold giving. When we decide to get serious about giving and move it from emotional to intentional, the next question is, how much should we give? What, what's what's the, the answer to that question? And that answer tends to be emotional if we don't watch it because we're, we're emotional people who get driven by our emotions. So God established a very clear non-emotional threshold for giving no matter the circumstance financially. It's called a tithe in Scripture. The word simply means a tenth, 10%. Giving 10% is God's giving threshold. He, you can find that pattern before the law, the Old Testament law was giving, where it actually in the law it was 23% of your income. It ended up being. But before that, there was sort of this threshold of 10%. In the law, you see 10%. Jesus affirmed that in some of his teaching. In fact, the way he affirmed it, he just totally assumed that they were already doing 10%. But anyway, this is the threshold, 10% of your income. Thresholds are very clear. When you, you knew you were in this room when you walked over that threshold of the, between those double doors right there. You're out of the room, come across the threshold, you're in the room. So it's very clear. Tithing is a clear threshold. Clear border for what God wants us to do. Malachi 3, 8 through 10 says this, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions, he says. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I... W- if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Now, I don't ignore the balance in my checking account. Because if I write a check or use my debit card and extend beyond my balance, what happens? I'm in trouble. I pay extra fees. My balance in my checking account is very real. 
there's a limit. There's certain much. I know if I go beyond that limit. I know when I've done. In fact, when I was trying to get something from my mom, I didn't understand this earlier on. And she told me she didn't have the money to, to get that. I said, well, you got a check. Just write a check. What's going on? You know, very real. She knew there's a balance in the check account that's very real. What happened to those in this passage that ignored the reality of the tithe that God was asking them to do? They called on a curse. They called down a curse on their finances. They discovered God's real. This is a real thing. These are, he's speaking to his people here, people who knew what he wanted and what he expected. God says, I'd rather have you learn that I'm real by living on the positive side of things, by giving, by testing me in this. Go ahead and give the tithe. See, see, what, see what happens. Cross the tithing threshold and watch. God will come through. He will pour out his blessing. There are few things that are as real to us as our money. Tithing is a threshold where God becomes real to us. And we can see him work as we're faithful to do that. When we begin to handle our money possessions as if God is real because he is, he works on our behalf to, to bless. It unlocks his blessing in our life. So Jesus is going to lead us through those first three levels and then on to level four, grace level. This is the grace level, extravagant giving. 2 Corinthians 8, 7 says, Since you excel in so many ways, in your faith, your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, and your love for us, I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. A generous life is characterized by a couple of things. A willingness to stretch yourself. And you've made the decision to use your income to fully accomplish God's purposes in the world. You're going to use it. And so far we've been looking like the last level. Sort of looks at your money like a pie chart. You know, there's like certain percentage. You want to live on a certain percentage. You want to save a certain percentage, and you give a certain percentage, sort of like a pie chart. At this level, we see that we are God's pipeline, that he pours his blessing into us, and we pour it out to others. 2 Corinthians 9.10 says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This is in the middle of a passage about giving. God's looking for people through whom he can pour out his blessing and then produce a harvest of what is right. God won't pour his blessing into clogged up pipes. He will not do that. It's generous giving that unclogs the pipe. So he takes you to that level so you can experience this. So you can understand that God is going to bless in proportion to my giving. We get on track with our finances. We've been looking in this series at how we get on track with our finances when we decide that God's current financial provision for my life is enough. It's enough. That's priceless. Scripture says if you can maintain that attitude and mindset, that is extremely valuable. And we grow to higher and higher levels of giving. 
and we start onto the path to the cell in giving when we recognize God's current provision is enough, and he is the owner of my life. This is He gave me this life. He really owns me. He gave me everything I have. He's the owner. I'm just a steward. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things... <clears throat> Excuse me, all things were created through him and for him. We were made for him. When we realize that, life makes sense. When you live for him, it's good to the extent that you do that. So I'd like to wrap up the message by asking you to think through your next steps. If you would, please Pull out the connection card if you don't have it out of the program already. And finish completing any information you haven't had a chance to fill out or some of the next steps that I'm going to suggest. And when the offering comes by, when the ushers bring it by, you can drop the card in the offering. That would be great. Here are some suggested next steps. My next step. Now, which step do you need to take over the next four months? Ask God for perspective. Ask him to tell you this. Ask him for help with this. First of all, maybe you need to step up to planned and, and proportional giving. Maybe that's what God said to you this morning. I need to get to that level, level two. You've been at level one, spontaneous gift return to God. Be ready to step up to level two. Or maybe your next step is to cross the threshold of giving, the 10%. Test God in that. You'll find out he's very real, and this is real. There's a real dynamic in your giving. And then a, a, a third step would be to, to grow to excel in the grace of giving. God's really challenged me. Maybe you're at the threshold and more, but you really want to excel in this grace of giving, and that's what God said to you. So let us know what step you want to take. Uh, we have a baptism overview coming up next week for those who are interested in being baptized. Baptism is a step that we take. After we've decided to follow Christ, that is a, it's a picture, it's a symbol of the change in what we've decided to do in our heart. We decide to, to die to our old selves and be raised to new life in, in Jesus, and it's a picture of that. And it's very important, it's an important step of obedience Jesus has asked us to take, and it connects us to him and to the church. And so um, if you want to know more about baptism or you're interested in that, the overview is next week. And you can get your questions answered there and find out more about it. But the 1st of April, we're going to be having a, a, a baptism. If you're a first-time guest with us today, we're really glad you're here. And we have a gift for you out on the guest table, the little higher table when you go through the double doors to the left. There's a book called What on Earth Am I Here For? It talks about purpose, talks about why we were made. And I think you'll find it helpful. We'd love for you to pick up that book and enjoy it and hope, hope it helps you. Would you pray with me as the band comes up on stage and as we get prepared to receive our offering? Father, we thank you for the truth that we find in your word. God, I, I thank you for your kindness and your grace and your patience sacrifice, Lord Jesus, you've given your life so that we could have life and know what life is all about. Thank you for what you've done. I pray that, God, you give us the power to take the steps that you've challenged us to take this morning. 
If you've laid something on our heart, God, give us the courage and the, the strength and the power to take the steps that lie before us. We ask for your help in this. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.